0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome, welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi,
0: everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear my interview with Don Cherry, also with Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun, who wrote about Don all week long, and employment lawyer John Pincus. Does Don Cherry have a case against his former employers. Catherine Swift and Linda Leatherdale, Beauties and the Beast, on issues political and otherwise. And uh, Cheryl Chumley is the Washington Times online editor on what she says is the impeachment charade taking place in Washington. And Dr. Courtney Howard, healthcare and climate change expert on what's required for climate change in this country. People from coast to coast to coast want to know how you're feeling today, Don.
2: Well, I don't feel too good when you're not on uh, something you've been on, on for 38 years. Uh, and and all of a sudden you're not on it anymore. Uh, I think the reality, the first couple of days it was like you know you're at war almost. And uh, no, I don't feel I don't feel very good today.
0: I'm gonna ask my callers to tell me how they explained you're being fired from Coach's Corner, to their kids, after you and I talk.
2: So let me turn I don't that... I like, uh, can,
0: can I just turn this around a little bit uh, on you and turn the question around and ask you, what's the impact of the last week been on your family?
2: Well, you know, my wife is uh, um, and my son and that and my daughter and that, and I, they're not too happy. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing that uh, I'm, uh, you know who your friends are uh, when uh, when you lose your job. I mean, I... Yeah, you, know, you have Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, and Curtis Joseph, and Kirk Muller, and Ty Domi, and Hazel McCallion, that's, uh, Hazel, you know, and you have the, uh, service, I got a, a great call from a general, uh, and, um, this, the, uh, i I just don't know what to tell him, I said, "What, what you stand up, uh, what you stand for, you might pay the price, like I'm paying the price, but, uh. Stand up for what, if uh, you want to tell them, stand up what you believe in.
0: So what do you want to say to the people across this country, the people, the person who turns on the TV or turns on their phone to watch you, what do you want to say to the people who stood up to support you and who are going to miss you on Coach's Corner, and also they'll miss you in their lives. You've become a part of the lives of millions of Canadians, and John, more than one generation.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny, when a guy comes up to me in the airport, and the guy's about 40 years old, he says, I've been watching you for the kid since I was a kid, and I think, hey, you know, every night, wait a minute. And then all of a sudden, yeah, that's true. Well, I, I still believe I, everyone should wear a poppy. I, I, I think about, of the dead soldiers. I, I think of them and the sailors and and everybody else that uh, gave their life for our way of life. Uh, I, that's the way I feel about it. I, I, I feel that... Uh, sometimes there's two two uh, standards of uh, broadcasting I mean a woman could, could come on TV and she can say that I'm a bigot uh, hockey players uh, young hockey players are white boy bullies and and stuff like that but I know i no, I, uh, I uh, when the truck drivers stop and give me a thumb up and when the policemen and uh, the, the firefighters drive by in their big trucks and beep their horns and Service forces. I, I I stand up for what I what I believe in. You might get knocked down, but you got to get right back in the race again. And I, I'm a little tired right now, and I, I I don't feel like getting in the race right now. But I will. Uh, I think my son, who does the Twitter for me, uh, told me this morning when I was taking my dog for a walk, he, he came out and he said that uh, the Twitter had 400,000 people hit on. I'm not saying everybody agreed with me, but Anybody that's on my Twitter usually agrees with me, so I I don't know what to tell. Uh, If I had my son, I'd say stand up for your rights, and uh, you might pay the consequences, but you'll feel better.
0: So I'm going to ask you a question now, Don, that I'm I'm thinking you have given thought to over the years. Why do you think so many Canadians have made Don Cherry a must-see part of their week? Why have so many Canadians decided you have to be part of their lives?
2: Well, I think first of all they know what I'm talking about. I've been there. I go out and I go to the prospect game. I I go out and see the young kids. I saw McDavid and Barner and all those guys before anybody else saw them. First of all, they know what I'm talking about. I think the kids tune in to to be truthful. I think they see the ties and and the suits, and things like that. I think they start out that way, and I think it's that way. And I I speak my mind. Uh, and um, evidently these people that, that are in charge now do not like that. And uh, that's, that's why I think they tune in. Uh, the, the people know what I'm talking about, and the kids, I think a lot of them tune in uh, to see the ties, to tell you the truth.
0: <laughs> the ties are special, and I remember you oh, giving... you ties give, and the
2: you, jacket and the whole thing.
0: Now You gave me a tie and a collar one day, and you yeah. said, think about wearing that, it's not comfortable.
2: No, it's not comfortable. <laughs> As my dad used to say, it's better to look good than feel good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um to the people who consider you a racist and are saying good riddance what what don't they understand about you or does that matter
2: no it doesn't matter because they're not going to change their mind they do not like me uh, i uh i should have said everybody not ever not everyone but th- no it doesn't matter they don't like me and uh, they don't like what i stand for and uh no matter what i say what i do it it doesn't make any difference, and so I. If they want to think that that way. That let them think it that way. If that really doesn't bother me. I know I'm not, and the guys like uh, Bobby and Wayne and Hazel. No, I'm not. You know, I'm 86. i would be 85, as Bobby says. You're 80, going to be 86, but I'm still going to keep it in the race. I'm a little down right now, but I'll I'll be back in the race.
0: I know you will. Um, and and for Bobby Orr to stand with you, Wayne Gretzky yeah. to stand with you, Joe Warmington. Who to, so,
2: s- to Joe, stand Joe, with you. Fantastic. <laughs> Joe Joe is, uh, I mean, uh, Joe is, like, uh, I, I don't know what to say about Joe. He's been doing the write-ups, and I know after a while, you know, the, the editors and that got to get after him, but uh, he doesn't mind. He just keeps putting them out, and <laughs> he, he is something.
0: What about Ron McClain?
2: Very disappointed. Uh, very disappointed, uh, even though... Sunday was, uh, it was, was crushing, I mean, uh, when he did the hometown hockey thing. But I, he's still my friend. I understand. and uh, But ver- I'm very disappointed. And Saturday night, you know, he made a, a comeback. But um, I just, uh, I was very disappointed that last Sunday. And I, I was, it was very crushing. to hear. Like, well, I don't know. That's all I can say. But I'm disappointed in him.
0: Yeah. Uh, Don, if a way to have you return to coaches corner were worked on would you be interested to discuss
2: uh, i i i offered i offered when they they actually came to my house and uh i offered i said you know I, i'll eat crow a little as they say and uh, no no wasn't enough for them so um i don't think they wanted me on anyhow i don't understand it i mean i i really don't understand it. it's got to be the most watched thing in canada uh, for sure and uh I heard stories about how the sports writers and they turn the sound up in the bars and I, I, I just only get a $5 million billion nut to crack and they get rid of their number one guy. No, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, I'm gone now and uh, nothing I can do about it. And I appreciate it being on your show.
0: Okay. Don, thank you for the time.
2: Okay, Roy. Talk to you soon. Heads up and I'll keep my chin up, all right? You do that. All right. Toodaloo. Thanks, Don.
0: Let's talk to uh, Joe Warmington, my good friend of the uh, Toronto Sun, who's been writing extensively and broadcasting extensively, been a guest on many programs across Canada in the last week as he's covered the Don Cherry story from beginning to where we are today. Joe's a good friend of Don's. Joe, thanks for the time.
3: It's good to be with you, Roy. It's a, you know obviously a sad subject, especially when that email you just uh, read out, and that's sort of a narrative the CBC and everybody's taken, and it's a, it's a lie. And Don didn't attack anybody. He didn't attack new Canadians. All he did was encourage everybody to wear a poppy. I don't know how many times he has to say it, or I have to say it, or you have to say it. And yet the narrative is fun, and they're trying to set a legacy that somehow this man, who was one of the greatest Canadians ever, number seven, which we haven't mentioned all week, is, you know, racist and all of this when that's not true. In fact, he's a victim of ageism, and many other things this week, and it's really, really disheartening.
0: Interesting that you mentioned that uh, CBC show that, I think it was 2004 or 2007, where they asked for Canadians to to name the top ten Canadians, or the greatest Canadians, and Don Cherry was number seven on the list of the greatest Canadians. Also, the, the two words that... We that, tear that, down
3: our own. Oh? Uh-huh. We do. I'm sorry? We tear down our own, you know, our own greats. And that's what this is. This is a coup d'etat, all of this. They're all part of it, including his best friend, the guy who got the best and most milk and honey, Ron McLean, along the way. Do you think Ron McLean's there without Don Cherry? And do you think he'll be there much longer without Don Cherry? So, yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting back then when they did that number seven thing. And, I, you know, I've had people tell me he actually came in number one in that and that they tweaked it. So I don't even know what the truth is anymore. After this week, I believe the... The story I just said there. What, Joe, the, the
0: words, the two words that are repeated uh, again and again, and I'm going to be talking with Gerald Desange about this tomorrow, former premier of BC. You people, because words have become weapons now in, in our society, and I run into it all the time. If I say something a certain way, somebody doesn't like it, I can guarantee you there'll be an email where I'm taken to task for, you said this. I don't even remember saying it. I have to go back and listen. To what I supposedly said, and often it's not—they—they cor- they don't have it correctly. But I—I I saw something that y- you put together on your site yesterday, uh, a mashing of how many times and how many or, or a number of occasions where Don Cherry has used the term "you people," and he's referred to all sorts of different situations. But he says that "you people," "you people. I wasn't aware of that said until I saw your 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 your, uh, your email, or at least your yeah, you know your video. He said
3: it, uh, yeah. He says that that's one of his sayings. "You kids out there," "you people." There's a couple other great ones, too, and we're not going to hear them anymore because they're taking him off the air, really, in his prime. I mean, nobody knows hockey better than Don, and that's the other thing that really bothered me this week is that we weren't talking about hockey once. We were talking about all these other lefty, you know, uh, politically correct, progressive things that they all have channeled into this, which it isn't. It's about patriotism, about Canada, and I know for a fact What Don meant because he told me all of what he said, you know, very, you know, not on the radio. Like when I'm on with you, I'm a little bit nervous and it doesn't come out quite right. But when we're talking just you and I on the phone, we articulate our points better. And even you, 50 years in broadcasting, I'm sure you have that. absolutely. And that's what happened here. He just mashed a bunch of things together, came out a little clunky. But everybody knows what he meant, including Ron McClain, so much so that he's got a thumbs up. And what, said, what do you say, you.
0: Joe, what do you say to people who will, and I just had a couple of calls uh, making this point, that he knows exactly what he was saying and that he, there's there's bigotry and racism there. And, and if you take that statement, and then if you, and I've seen e- emails from people, and they're very long, so I can't get into it, I can't read them all, but... Uh, they're saying, I was hurt. I'm an immigrant to Canada. I wore a poppy, and I was hurt by what Don Cherry said. I felt like it was aimed at me. What do you say to those people? Clean
3: your ears out and stop looking for, you know, everything that's said to go a particular way. I mean, you know, they're entitled to their feelings. And, I, you know, again, I've had a few of those, too, and I think some of the people are legitimate, and Don tried to clarify that. That should be good enough. And this whole bit, you know, a lot of this stuff... Is manufactured as the overall progressive movement, and it's designed to take him down. It's not new. I mean, it's long, long in the game. He survived a long time from these same forces. Now, in terms of someone heard about something somebody said, you know, it's hard to say, uh, but it would be nice if he actually said it. And once they, it's clarified to them what he said and what he meant, he should be able to explain it.
0: What I or wanted to see, what, you, Joe, what I what, it wrong. what I would have liked to have seen, and I think would have been appropriate, since this is a huge national story, and everybody in every corner of this country is talking about it. You're talking about 38 years of Don Cherry on Coach's Corner, and the employer obviously wanted him there until last weekend or Monday or whenever. Yeah, Monday, they fired him on, on Remembrance Day. I believe there should have been an opportunity for Don Cherry to appear on Coach's Corner and explain to Canadians what what exactly he was saying.
3: Well, of course it should have happened. But they wanted a big culpa apology as well. And, you know, and, and basically for him to submit that somehow he was being racial with that comment and that he's a bigot. And he wasn't going to do that because he knows he wasn't. And I know... He wasn't trying to say that because it was my column last Saturday that he was responding to, and he was in that column talking about the poppies, and he explained it much better to me than he did on the air. That should be good enough for people after 38 years and after millions of dollars earned for people and after entertaining people, and we all grew up with him, and nobody cared. It's scary stuff. I'm telling you, when it's your turn, Roy, when it's mine, or when it's somebody out there listening right now, driving around, or wherever you are, they're coming for you because, and there'd be no press about it.
0: Let and me do so this. this is let a me
3: really, really high wire act because.
0: Joe, let me play you something. I'm wire. running. I'm running short on time here. Let me play you something. I played it earlier. I asked Don Cherry, what if he would have any interest in returning to Coach's Corner if things were worked out? Here's part of what he said.
2: I offered. They actually came to my house, and uh, I offered. I said, you know, I, I'll eat crow a little, as they say. And, uh, no, it wasn't enough for them. So um, I don't think they want to be on anyhow. I don't understand it.
0: Yeah. He offered. And he said, "Joey said he'd be willing to eat some crow.
3: I, You know, I don't care what they do. I'm not watching it tonight. I'm not interested. I don't think I can watch my longtime friend, Ron McLean, you know, Stick the dagger further into his longtime friend, Don Cherry. Can't watch that. I'll look for it on Twitter. There's other things to do. Without Coach's Corner, there's no point. You know, I'll watch a hockey game again, but I'm not going to watch that show the way I used to. And when the inter- intermission comes, I'll go do something else like go get uh, something to eat or pour a drink or something because they're going to miss him, I'm telling you, and the revenue he brings in. But there's more than that, Roy. This is right and wrong. This is Uncle Don. This is Canada's icon. This is somebody that, you know, the whole idea of free speech and debate. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's been ripped by Don. He's, he, he gives you the criticism like a coach. He still loves you.
0: Let me tell so, you a quick story. I've st- had
3: it happen. I've written stuff that he didn't like and he gives me the earful and then the next time he calls up and says, great job on this or that.
0: Let me tell you a quick that's
3: story. That's, that's Canada.
0: Let me tell you a quick story. I'm going to take the extra time here. Um... And you know this story, but I just want to share it with our with our listeners. i probably mentioned it once or twice over the years, but they had a Don Cherry night in Hamilton at Cops Coliseum when it was the Vancouver, um, um, not the Canucks, the ha- Vancouver, um, anyway, it was the Hamilton, Hamilton Canucks in the American Hockey League. So they had a Don Cherry night. And so Don came with, uh, with his wife Rose and his kids, and there was a ceremony at Center Ice, and he told me I was the MC. He said, "Get it over fast, because I don't want the players to be uh, cooled down and get hurt when they play." So we got it over fast. They had a box set aside for the Cherry family. Rose and uh, the children went into the box, and and Don went down and sat in the seat in a regular seat, as close to the aisle as possible. And he had three pens, three or four pens, and the kids started to form up a line up the stairs and around the corridor in Cops Coliseum. I don't know how many there were, Joe, hundreds anyway, you know, four or five hundred kids, maybe more. And Don Cherry sat and signed every autograph for every kid, had a word for every kid, and a wink for every parent. And when the last kid had had his autograph signed or her autograph signed, he turned around and said to Rose, Okay, we can go now. Um, That, to me, spoke about the Don Cherry I know. I know there are listeners right now who are listening and saying, that doesn't matter what he did and what he's been doing makes him irrelevant. But I wanted to tell that story.
3: Is it be so irrelevant? Then why are, is that all that we're covering? And that's the you know the guy you just described there. That's the guy we're throwing under the bus. That's the guy that we're doing it to. Not not the killer. Not you no. Know, I saw on the CBC there they had like you know seventy five minutes straight on this panel after panel. And yet on the Danforth I was out there. They had you know two young ladies uh, murdered in cold blood and. 16 others wounded, one of the worst days in Toronto's history, and then, you know, it gets covered, but it's not wall-to-wall, and you try to tell the truth about what happened, and nobody will tell the truth, and, you know, the Prime Minister can run around and do SNC-Lavalin or groping or blackface, gets reelected, and, you know, they give you a hard time for criticizing him. and yet everybody seems to be, I'm talking everybody on this sort of progressive left that are trying to do whatever they're trying to do. Joe, I Joe, I got to sti- decide to take him down. I so anyway, I got to, look, I've got to jump.
0: Joe, I got to jump in only because of the clock. I'm way over. Way over. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me and thanks uh, you know for having this national show where you get all sides out. I think it's good that everybody's voices are heard and I appreciate you having me today.
0: Thank you, Joe. Let's talk to uh, employment law specialist John Pincus from Samfiru to Markin LLP in Toronto. And, uh, John, thank you very much for the time. One of the questions that I have is what happens to an employee in a situation like the one Don Cherry finds himself in now, as far as the employer is concerned or his Don Cherry's rights, if he seeks to engage a suit against his former employers, on what basis might that be approached, if there is a basis?
1: Yeah, good to be with you. And the first thing that I'll say is that Don Cherry's situation really is unlike any situation that almost anyone is likely to find themselves in. Um, There are certainly some situations where making comments like these uh, in a public visible role um, could be cause for immediate discharge. But in Don Cherry's case, uh, he's been doing this for years, for many years, uh, decades. Uh, And so I I think it's going to be very hard uh, for Sportsnet to come out and say, well, now now it's cause for dismissal. Mm-hmm. Uh, presumably, he's not, he's not warned about this before. Uh, they're making a business decision, and I think probably a necessary business decision in the circumstances, given the reaction and the fallout. But that doesn't change the fact that they have allowed this to go on uh, for such a long time. And arguably, he's made comments that perhaps weren't, weren't as bad as this one, uh, but certainly in, in the eyes of the public also crossed the line.
0: Um. The fact, as I understand it, that the uh, segment was is pre-taped and there was some considerable period of time, uh, well over an hour anyway, for the, between the, the pre-taping and the first airing, this is what I understand. Uh, does that factor in anywhere that they would have had the time to
1: hear this to say, wait, wait, let's revisit this? Absolutely, I think that would factor in because uh, if, if I was acting for, for, for Mr. Cherry in this case, I would be saying, look, you, you you knew this. You knew that this was going on the air. You had the opportunity to review it, and you did it anyway. And so this is not a proactive measure. It's a reactive measure. Uh, and and I would say that uh, that you, you know, Rogers, you're, you're as, as surprised as I am that this has become an issue. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that Don Cherry's statements uh, are excusable or acceptable. Most, most of the public uh, would agree that they're not. But... Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that in the context of his employment relationship, in the context of his employment contract, that's basically what he was hired to do. That that may not be right, but that was the deal that they struck.
0: I'd like to see a national poll, actually, on, on what the feeling is across Canada, because that would be helpful for all of us within in, in a different context and I'm going to be talking about that whole issue with the former Premier of British Columbia tomorrow, but I'd like to see a poll like that. Yeah, look, a lot is made about his age. I've seen email after email after email saying he's 85 years old, Mr. Cherry mentioned he was 85 on in the interview with me. Is age a factor? Is, is there an ageism argument here or, or not?
1: There there may be, but in, in, in some circumstances and in some way, but I, I don't think that you could say that um, at that at this point that he's being let go because of his age. I mean, the fact that they have continued to employ him uh, to age 85 I think would be a fairly compelling argument that they have no problem hiring someone whether they're 65 or an octogenarian. So I, I don't think that argument would go very far. Um, certainly if, if they had terminated him because of his age, that'd be an issue because there's been no mandatory retirement in Ontario for a very long time. But I don't. I I think that would be a bit of a stretch here, based on what I know.
0: So, how do you see this playing out? As a professional employment lawyer, employment law specialist, how do you how do you see this playing itself out?
4: Well, look, I
1: I don't know. I mean, I'm not behind the scenes in terms of what's actually happening. But if I were to wager a, a guess, I'd say probably they are offering him some kind of severance, and if they're not, probably that's going to be negotiated behind closed doors, and it's it's probably going to be. If that is negotiated, if they do pay him something, it's probably something the public will never find out about. But I, I have little doubt that this company knows that uh, trying to establish cause for dismissal after having condoned arguably similar statements, even if, if not as severe, uh, for so many years, um, especially for for someone who has worked for them for this long, is it, going to be a real uphill battle. So typically in situations like this, uh, it's it's rare for a company to to try and push uh, the just cause issue uh, too far.
0: John Pincus, thank you very much for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks. Likewise. John Pincus, Employment Law Specialist at Samfiru Tumarkin in Toronto. Uh, It's Beauties on the Beast segment with Catherine Swift, former CEO and President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, now working canadians.ca, and Linda Leatherdale, Vice President of Cambria, Canada, former money editor of the Toronto Sun. Usually they're joined by Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, and seatmate to uh, Justin Trudeau, but uh, Michelle is not able to join us today. Hi, Linda.
5: Hello, Roy.
0: And Catherine, how are you?
5: I'm great out here in beautiful Red Deer, Alberta.
0: So, what's going on in Red Beer?
6: Well, I'm a... I said Red
0: Deer, not Red Beer.
6: (laughs) That's right, yes. I can't say. I, I've heard of Green Bear, but I'm not so sure about that. Um, yeah, no, we're having, I'm speaking at a conference, and interestingly enough, on uh, Western independence, alienation, you know, whatever you want to call that. Um, it's been very, very interesting, needless to say, and boy, people are pretty mad. <laughs> I don't think that'll come as a terrible shock to a lot of Canadians, and if it does, then people better start paying attention, because the
0: West wants out, <laughs> Well, it's quite a few quite a few Westerners, particularly in Alberta and Saskatchewan, are, are talking that way. And I'm going to play a clip from Monsieur Blanchet, the leader of the Bloc Québécois, in just a couple of minutes, and have you respond to that, because Blanchet met with Mr. Trudeau, as, of course, uh, did uh, Jagmeet Singh and Scott Moe, the uh, premier of Saskatchewan, who's been a regular guest on this program. But uh, before we do that... Let's get at uh, well. Let's talk about the the meetings. Let's start with this. Let's talk about the meetings Mr. Trudeau had with the other party leaders and with uh, with Premier Mo, because he can't govern the way he did before. He can't govern. We all know that. There's no majority. He's got a strong minority. But he's uh, Jug Singh has said to him essentially, "You work with us because otherwise you're going to work with the Conservatives." Linda, you've seen minority governments in the past. You've You've seen them. I mean, we had the, a series of them. It got to the point where Canadians were saying, "You know, maybe we're more comfortable with minority governments because we can kick them out, or they'll disappear in about two years' time, and we'll have more opportunity to decide how we want to go forward." How do you see this minority government uh, situation you know, working vis-à-vis what we had maybe ten years ago?
7: You know, it's it's a scary time here in Canada, and it's so fractionist And it's funny that you know, not funny. It's it's great that Catherine's out in Red Deer, Alberta, but. This is a different scope here. We've got so much hate and talk of separatism. Um, and then, of course, you've got Singh saying, well, come, you've got you got to deal with me, the NDP, or you're going to have to deal with the Conservatives. And then you've got the bloc who doesn't even give a tinker's damn about the rest of our country. Uh, yes, I believe it gives you better democracy in a minority, perhaps, because I often have said a majority government is like a dictatorship, but let 's look at this. We could be back at the polls again shortly it 's going to cost us money, but this is what scares me. Ottawa the net debt in Ottawa alone is seven hundred billion predicted to go to eight hundred and sixty billion by twenty twenty three that doesn 't include all the debt of the provinces, which now we 're into trillion. Anyway, if we do a thing with climate change, universal pharmacare, public dental coverage, other things that the NDP want, who's who's putting the bill? And my concern is we keep on spending, spending, and spending with no control.
1: Okay.
7: And the other comment is, oh my goodness, Quebec, separate. Catherine will tell you Alberta and even Saskatchewan and. I look at the equalization payments, I cannot believe that Quebec has a $4 billion surplus and is going to get $13 billion in equalization payments. Alberta is suffering.
6: if they didn't get the equalization, they would have a $9 billion deficit. You know what I'm saying. Like The, the only reason they have a surplus is because, because of, of equalization.
0: But you know what we're seeing here, really, if you think about what Blanchet has said, and we'll play it for you in a second. Um, but what he's also uh, said to, to Justin Trudeau, what he's telling Canadians, he's agitating. This is what Quebec separatists have constantly done. And now the bloc is back with a real presence in, in, in our parliament, which they haven't had for quite some time. They were the official opposition at one time not so long ago. But now they have a real presence and they're flexing their muscles. And I think you're seeing the separatist sentiment being pushed by both um, uh, Blanchette and by Legault, by both of them. Because remember, Legault was a Parti Quebecois um, cabinet minister. Let me just play you what, so, so that everybody's caught up with this, let me play you just a few seconds of what the leader of the Bloc Quebecois, Blanchet, had to say about his level of interest in Western Canada. If they were attempting to create a green state in Western Canada, I might be tempted to help them. If they are trying to create an oil state in Western Canada, they cannot expect any help from us. Catherine.
6: Well, the hypocrisy is pretty rich. Uh, Quebec that not only takes transfer payments, uh, equalization, et cetera, you know, to beat the band, much of which is generated by what wealth generated generated by Western Canada, but they also use an awful lot of oil from Western Canada. So, I mean, you know, I, I the, the perverse part of me wants uh, wants Alberta to start turning the taps off to give people a little dose of reality. So there's no question, uh, Blanchet is, is he's poking the bear here. Uh, very unhelpful from a national standpoint. But, but don't you I but think,
0: don't you think he there's method to his madness? He knows what oh he's yeah, doing. No, he knows what he's though. doing. I don't,
6: think, I don't think they want to separate. I really don't. I've never thought they did uh, because they've got far too good a deal in Canada, much better than they would ever have as a separate. Remember,
0: it was state. it was less. It was a margins of one percentage point. That I decided remember it well. In 1995,
6: 1995, yeah. extremely well. Uh, because I remember looking at that TV and seeing something flip back and forth between yes and no and so on. Um, and at that time, though, Canada was bringing its hands and worried. Yeah. I would like to bet, and I don't think this is a happy statement, but I would like to bet today if that same scenario played itself out. Uh, much of the rest of Canada would say, "Have a nice day." Quebec.
0: What now that you're since you're in Alberta? Let me ask you this: What are you hearing, uh, just from people at the conference, or folks that you're meeting on the street, or in a hotel, or wherever you're going in in Red Deer? What are you hearing on the separation issue? Do people bring it up, or is it? Oh, it's, yeah? it's
6: the topic of the day. And what's it's, what's, it's what's the consensus topic. view? Well, the well the consensus view where I am, which maybe isn't representative. You know, this is the challenge. I'm at a group. Uh, that tends to be small C conservatives. They uh, have a you know they sort of pay more attention to economic issues than maybe the general population does. But they're very very much, um, and, and I won't say separatism per se, but, it's, but basically that's not uh, out of the you know out of the realm of possibility in people's minds. What they're what they're actually discussing here, and there's been some Quebec speakers here too. It's been interesting. Uh, things like a separate pension plan, you know, mm-hmm. things like get out of the CPP, things yep. like having a separate police force. Yep. And you might have noticed the recently unionized RCMP is now is now demanding a raise. Oh, what a shocker! Uh, and that that could egg on jurisdictions to say, "Okay, RCMP, you're too pricey. We're going to do our own thing." Okay, I have to take um, a break in know, one ha- minute. Ha- I'm sorry, I have
0: to take a break in one minute. Yep. A thought from Linda on on this whole issue of when you, you know, get let's get your reaction to what you heard from the leader of the Bloc Québécois.
7: Well, you're right, he's pulling, well, pulling <laughs> being playing plain politics. But having said that, I, I think it's disgusting. I think at this time in our history, we all need to come together. And um, as I mentioned, this fraction uh, throughout now Canada and um, the economic situation, I, I, I'm worried. I'm worried.
0: Back with the Catherine Swift. Linda Leatherdale, two thirds of *Beauties and the Beast*, and uh, the issues that we're. What's going on? Sounds like there's water running in the background. I'm sorry, but I'm in a hotel and I, I can't control some of the noise. Oh, what are they doing? <laughs> what's all that going water flowing? That was
6: just some sliding <laughs> doors. So that was, water, it's just water. some flooding.
0: <laughs> That's Venice. It's okay, no worries. Just some flooding it's in honestly. the lobby. No, no concerns. <laughs> I won't. I won't leave until I'm knee deep in water. Um, okay, let me play you, and and this is a. You know, I'm going to have this discussion today and tomorrow uh, revolving around Don Cherry, who will not be on Coach's Corner tonight. I'm, I doubt there'll be a Coach's Corner. I don't see how they do that. Anyway, it's not my call. I'm not the broadcaster. Um, but... The fallout and the reaction to and the the larger picture, we'll get into that with Ujal D'Assange, but specifically we're talking about Don Cherry today. Let me play you from my interview, which will air in about 45 minutes' time in its entirety. Let me play you the first question I asked Don
2: Cherry and his answer.
0: People from coast to coast to coast want to know how you're feeling today, Don.
2: Well, I don't feel too good. When you're not on uh, something you've been on, on for 38 years, uh, and and all of a sudden you're not on it anymore. Uh, I think the reality. The first couple of days it was like you know you're at war almost. And uh, no, I don't feel I don't feel very good today.
0: So there's the first uh, question and and answer. Now at the end of the interview and we played this for you at the top of the hour. I just want to play this again.
2: I offered. They actually came to my house and uh, I offered. I said, you know, I, I'll eat crow a little, as they say, and uh, no, it wasn't enough for them. So um, I don't think they want to be on anyhow. I don't understand it.
3: All right, uh,
0: Linda Leatherdale, what's what's? I mean, how are you reacting? What's happened to this week?
7: This is my reaction, Roy. I would love to start a petition, bring back Don Cherry.
0: Um, there is one online already. It's got two hundred fifty thousand signatures. There
7: we go. Keep it coming, then. Because I think it's disgraceful, and I, I, I cannot believe, you know, it was like looking for an excuse. This gentleman is a superstar, but not only that, people think, oh, he's got this gruff exterior, and I'm sure Catherine has met Don Cherry as well. He is yep. one of the sweetest people. You know, when it comes to charity, he has the a Rose a Cherry a Home for Kids, a Pet Rescue Foundation, and on and on and on, but it's not just that. Bobby Orr himself has said... This is a kind, gentle person. So
0: let's go back to what happened on Saturday.
7: Well, you know what I mean. He's always been opinionated. Correct. Was it incorrect to say that? I'm not so sure. I'm a person who believes that we have to honor our veterans, and I believe. But that when you, any if you,
0: I don't, I'm playing devil's advocate here. If, yes. you, if you point at, uh, if it's perceived that you're pointing at um, immigrants or newcomers. Mm-hmm. Then that gets that gets gets reaction. I would have liked to have seen uh, the network give him an opportunity to respond. But anyway,
6: absolutely, exactly, Catherine. Yeah. What are what you what's your yeah, thinking? I, I feel the same way. Um, I don't think what he said was uh, what he said was ham handed for sure. It was you know uh, politically incorrect, I guess you could say. But what bugs me is this double standard of that. Uh, it's only some comments that are offensive to some people that seem to be proscribed, you know, that seem to be, to be worthy of this kind of reaction. I mean, we have an idiotic prime minister who trotted around in blackface several times that we know of, and and that's somehow acceptable. And he becomes reelected. elected He gets reelected elected Yeah, well, that's what I mean. That, and I know it's not a comparison, blah, 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 but, but what bugs me is the double standard and the hypocrisy here. Don Cherry, I mean, he did... Ninety-nine percent of everything, right? And yes, his, his reputation is one of being a little couple, and all that, rock him, as we know, uh, Don. But um, he deserved better. He deserved the benefit of the doubt here and the chance, as you say, Roy, to explain. Um, and I, but I agree with you, Linda. I think this was, you know, they were probably looking for an out, and he gave it to them. Well,
0: I, uh, I, uh, when I spoke with Don, and people will hear the interview, and I've known him for thirty years. Um people will hear the questions that I asked him. And I, it wasn't the usual... I, I like to think it wasn't the usual questions. But we'll get a, we'll get a sense of, of, of Don Cherry from that interview. I don't want to say any more than that now. But the question that I want to ask, and I think it's important to ask this question because you have multiples of generations that have grown up with Don Cherry in Coach's Corner. So how are today's parents, who likely grew up watching him on Coach's Corner as kids themselves... How are they explaining to their kids why Don Cherry isn't on Coach's Corner anymore? That's going to be very interesting for me to hear.
6: I'm dying to hear my sons, who are both massive hockey fans. I mean, they're, they're adults now. They're millennials.
0: Thirty-somethings,
6: and I'm dying to hear their reaction. Talk to them, so I'm dying to hear their reaction because I I suspect they'll be pretty ticked off.
0: <laughs> what about what about your daughter um, Linda and uh, and and her husband? Millennials. I, we,
7: we chatted this today, uh, Sky and I, and uh, she is just outraged as I am. She thinks this is ludicrous, and she is a young lady at 27. But you made a point earlier, Roy, and, and we that have 30. Is,
0: we have 30 seconds.
7: We have we're fraction. We we we're beating each other up. Somebody said he's an old man, he shouldn't be there anyway. Wrong. And I want to tell everybody, one day you'll wake up, you're 65, you're 75, you're going to be old too. So let's have a little heart, everybody. Have a heart. And
6: it's the divisiveness. And Roy, you were alluding to that, the divisiveness Mm -hmm. and how we're pouncing on each other. And, but I'm sorry. But it's, we, are,
0: we are attacking one another from, from within.
6: Yeah, it, exactly. Thank and, and you. this politically correct stuff that's
7: gone way, it's gone wrong.
0: Catherine school. Swift, Linda Leatherdale, without Michelle Simpson today, thanks so much. We'll talk soon.
7: Thanks, Ray. Thank you, Ray.
0: Beauties on the Beast. When we come back, we're going to talk about how much the Senate costs us. It's gone up a lot. Our guest, Cheryl Chumley, she's an online opinion editor, or the online opinion editor, with the Washington Times. She's also the author of The Devil in D.C., Winning Back the Country from the Beast in Washington. And the uh, column that I read, or the opinion piece that I read by Ms. Chumley, was Impeachment Charade. Um, I feel like Trump may have maybe said that or maybe meant it. And that kind of summarizes what the impeachment hearings have sounded like whenever I've tuned in. Ms. Chumley, thank you very much for the time. Cheryl, thank you. And I tell you, when I've tuned in to watch, I've stuck around for five minutes, seven tops, and then I kind of first I wander off mentally, and then the thumb hits the uh, the remote control, and I'm gone.
5: Well, you're you're not wrong on that. That's what a lot of Americans are doing here, uh, watching the impeachment hearings as they unfold. And it, it's great to be here with you, Roy, especially uh, to... Uh, you know, kind of run down some of the ridiculous things that are happening with these hearings, and you nailed it right there. It's just, it's hearsay after hearsay. It's just, I think that my friend overheard him say on the phone that he feels this way, and then Adam Schiff, or or the attorney for Adam Schiff, chimes in, well, that's impeachable offense, isn't it? And that's how it goes, and then the media runs with it. And uh, the Americans deserve a little bit more fact-based uh, rationale for impeaching the president.
0: This is serious business, or it's supposed to be. It is.
5: It's, it's supposed to be.
0: What <laughs> it is. Gone. I mean, I, I, I look at it, it's almost as though when I'm watching what's going on in the time that I spend there, it's almost though, as though they're hunting for opportunities as opposed to having a well thought out position that they're pursuing. It looks as though they're hunting for opportunities for sound bites. And this is, again, this is very serious business. This is pursuing the impeachment of the president of the United States. And, you know, I'm actually surprised, Cheryl, at how tenuous the Democrats' position appears to be. Second and third-hand overhearing of conversations on a smartphone, in a restaurant, in Kiev, Ukraine. Wow.
5: And interpreting the, the feelings and motivations of the president. So it's not just hearsay. It's hearsay on, on what they feel like the motives of the president would be based on those conversations, which is it, it's outrageous and it's egregious. And that was just day one. Day two, it got even worse when you have the former ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Yovanovitch, on there, testifying to the, the feeling she had because she was let go by the president from her ambassador slot. And then Schiff would take that and run with it as if the president had done some sort of offense, impeachable offense, by replacing this ambassador, when everybody uh, upwards of third grade knows that the president can choose whomever he pleases to fill ambassador roles. So it's just getting curiouser and curiouser to quote, you know, Alice in Wonderland.
2: Well,
0: you know, uh, there's all this talk about quid pro quo. Donald Trump would free up money or military equipment for Ukraine as long as the president of Ukraine were to pursue an investigation of Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, the younger Biden receiving some $50,000 a month to sit on the board of an energy company. In uh, in Ukraine, I doubt Hunter Biden knows more about energy than I do, and mine's limited to turning on a light switch or turning it off. I doubt he knows much more than I do. But he's getting $50,000 a month while his father's the vice president of the United States. Frankly, I'd find that curious and what answers do.
5: Yeah, and uh, let's not forget that a key prosecutor was let go uh, from looking into this company which the allegations are that joe biden had some influence over that uh so that's something that even this ambassador uh, in the second day of hearing, Jovanovich, said that democrats had a little bit of heartache over and they were worried about how that would look ethically and so forth and rightly so we should be looking in the direction of joe biden hunter biden and so forth and not donald trump and ukraine
0: When Mr. Schiff, who's the head of the committee for the Democrats, uh, when he says or suggests, I believe he said it, that um, Donald Trump's tweeting that the former ambassador, Jovanovic, was incompetent or her record speaks for herself, when he suggests that that is witness uh, intimidation and that some on that committee take witness intimidation seriously, in other words, he's suggesting there could be a Maybe a criminal offense being perpetrated by Donald Trump for tweeting as he did. <sighs> Speak to that, please, because I, I I'm watching Schiff and I'm thinking,
5: <laughs> I'm thinking,
0: really seriously, we're talking Twitter here.
5: Yeah, it, it's laughable. And two quick points on that. First off, if uh, Donald Trump tweeting his thoughts about a person in a negative way is tantamount to witness intimidation. Uh, then what about all the the thoughts that have been expressed by the Democrats and the far left against Trump? You know, that goes beyond intimidation. That would be outright persecution. But put that aside for a second, and look at what happened in those hearings. When Donald Trump tweeted... Uh, what what he thought of Yovanovitch and her job as ambassador. And then Adam Schiff took time out from this hearing on, on impeachment to discuss the tweet and to try and make the case that this is something that Donald Trump shouldn't be doing because it's intimidating the witness, uh, and then actually trying to make the jump, the leap, that this means that Donald Trump is guilty of an impeachable offense that just shows that the Democrats have nothing here. I mean, if they're in the middle of an impeachment hearing and they have to time out to talk about Donald Trump's tweets and make it part of the impeachment process, they've got nothing. It, it just looks sad and sorry.
0: Well, first it was uh, the, the Russia collusion story, which got nowhere and spent it took two years. Uh, now it's this and there was something else and I've forgotten what it is. There was a third thing that they were they were after. I can't remember what it is. Um, but do the Democrats, do you think that they have more than they're revealing? In other words, is there a strategic game underway here? We're going to just keep this in front of the American people and then at one some point when it's least advantageous to the president we want to get rid of, we'll spring it on the American people.
5: Well, it, absolutely, and this is the strategy that, in fact, the left announced. You know, as soon as it was evident that Donald Trump was the pick for the Republican Party for president, the attacks on him started. You know, under Barack Obama, Russia was a laughable uh, country. If you if you recall back in time when Mitt Romney was running for president, and he brought up in one of the uh, the debates he had against Obama that Russia was a key enemy of the United States. Obama mocked and laughed and scorned on that. Suddenly, now that Trump's here, uh, Russia becomes enemy number one again and it was russia collusion russia obstruction of justice that didn't work and now it's ukraine uh, quid pro quo they took a poll on that and find out quid pro quo wasn't selling well with the with the people to take down trump so they changed it to bribery uh you've got nancy pelosi the speaker of the house coming out and saying that now donald trump after the first hearing on impeachment has practically admitted guilt bribery and the media is running with that so this is you know the American people aren't fooled but the media is just running with this message that Trump is a crook and a criminal and he has no right to be in the White House and the whole thing stems back to the gall that he had by being elected that that's what it is that the left cannot uh, stomach the idea that he actually beat Hillary Clinton
0: now, is there any comparison between these impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump and the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton? I'll leave Nixon out of the picture because he created his own Watergate. But uh, is there any comparison between Clinton and, and Trump?
5: Well, Clinton did lie
0: and the I'm, I'm, talking about, took his finger I'm talking about
5: I'm talking about the, the stage
0: the stage where it's at now,
5: Cheryl. Oh, well, the stage where it's at now, I think that Trump, in my opinion, is just being vilified by the press and not given a fair hearing. Under Bill Clinton, uh, you know, during that time and and, and age, there were the Clinton haters in the media, but by and large, he got a lot fairer shake in the media. Uh, And there did not seem to be this whole resistance and rebellion and just, you know, utter hatred to boot him from office. It was more based on fact, a lot less based on hatred for the man.
0: Cheryl Chumley, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks. Thanks, Roy. Cheryl Chumley, online opinion editor for The Washington Times, and she is the author of The Devil in D.C., Winning Back the Country from the Beast in Washington. Climate change. Climate change. Time for the health care sector to do its part says a new report by the Lancet Countdown on health and climate change. The Lancet is the British medical journal. And uh, Dr. Courtney Howard is a wildfire researcher, Canadian spokesperson for the International Lancet, Lancet Countdown Report, Yellowknife emergency physician. And uh, and it seems that our that our uh, Canada's health care system is pretty close to the worst in the world or one of the worst in the world um, if I understand it correctly, Dr. Howard, in terms of greenhouse gas pollution, is that right? Hello, Dr. Howard.
4: Hey, how- Hello. Oh. Hi, how are you doing? I think my headset wasn't working. Uh, yes, we are not that good in terms of our carbon footprint. We're the third worst in the world in the Canadian healthcare sector, uh, per capita.
0: So how do we measure this and, and, and who's down there with us?
4: Well, there's teams of researchers who um, crunch the numbers, and uh, they sort of tally up the energy use in our hospitals and the energy associated with uh, our transport and our supplies and, you know, make these estimates. So um, this estimate is in line with the only other real estimate of the um, uh, healthcare sector that was done here in Canada, which was done by one of the co-authors of our Canadian brief uh, of this report, Dr. Andrea McNeil, and she found that we, so the Canadian healthcare sector makes up about 4.6% of the overall Canadian emissions and also uh, emits about 200,000 tons worth of other pollutants that result in about 23,000 disability adjusted life years lost every year in Canada as a result of healthcare, um, which isn't great for an industry that is supposed to be doing no harm.
0: Yeah, I want to talk to you about that, but uh, can, can you tell us in whose company we are? What other the nations are down at the bottom of the list with Canada, by way of comparison?
4: So most um, other healthcare systems, unfortunately, are increasing. Um, sorry, I'm on the train. The thing that is um, encouraging, however, is that our, when we look at our colleagues across the pond in the UK, they've actually been measuring the carbon footprint of their healthcare system since 2007. And they've managed to show an 18.5% decrease in greenhouse gas emissions as a result of just keeping track of how much they're making and making budgets for this decrease. Right now in Canada, we've almost been sort of like a family who hasn't been keeping track of their takeout budget and isn't really aware of how much we're spending.
0: So what are the issues uh, that, that, that need to be addressed when we're talking about the national healthcare care system and it's creating this major uh, uh, carbon footprint? What are the issues that need to be addressed? If you look at the system as a whole, where does the focus have to go?
4: Well, so one of the things that um, we know from other work is that a lot of, interventions about 30 percent by some estimates um that go one are actually needless so things like doing uh, an x-ray on somebody with lower back pain um the first day that they have it if they haven't had any kind of trauma or a fall the, the odds of uh yielding uh something that shows you know uh that makes the x-ray worthwhile are actually really low And so there's a group called Choosing Wisely that's made a list of those kinds of things um, to help us uh, essentially triage our our work so that we, you know, save time, save tests, and also save carbon emissions. Um, So that's one way that we can reduce. Another way that we can reduce our carbon emissions is by reducing some of the single-use items that we have in the hospital. There was a trend maybe 10 years ago that really started where there was, sort of a push to move from the items that we've traditionally sterilized and used over and over to you know disposable drapes in the operating room to the sterile field disposable suture kits even in the emergency department and there's no evidence that those reduce infection and meanwhile we're creating incredible amounts of waste and so that all has uh, carbon emissions associated with it as well as it's filling up our landfills so that's a place where we can improve as well as um, there's increasing opportunities in virtual care. So I live in Yellowknife. you can imagine, you know, some of our patients have to travel for thousands of kilometers to see a specialist. And so increasingly we're doing some of our follow-up visits, particularly with specialists uh, via telemedicine. So it's one area where if we start to keep track of those visits and, you know, put numbers to the money we're saving from, uh, you know, stopping people flying for thousands of kilometers to see their, their physicians, um, we can show decreases in carbon emissions as well as decreases in costs.
0: Well, how many patients, uh, though, do we do we have a number on uh, how many patients fly thousands of kilometers to see a, a
4: specialist? No, we don't. But it would be great if we did. Um, that's the kind of thing we need to do. There have been a couple of small studies. One was uh, done in Ontario um, that was looking at how much money and carbon emissions were saved by having telemedicine involving patients in northern Ontario and it was considerable. Um, The island medical authority uh, in BC has also been keeping track of numbers but the kind of thing that hasn't really been making it into peer-reviewed journals um, at the rate that we need it to so we're hoping that by shedding light on this issue um, you know we can start to, to keep track. We know that you know what gets measured gets mitigated and so as we better track, we'll be able to do a better job. And it's really important we do the international report this year really stressed how important uh, climate change is going to be for the health of kids. Right now we're on a high emissions pathway that is going to see today's children exposed to increasing wildfires, heat events, and infectious disease, and really an increasingly unstable world that's going to make it difficult for us to provide health care for them to the end of their, you know, their lives. And so we in the healthcare sector think it's time for us to start to lead by example so that we can, you know, improve health for Canadians now, decrease costs, as well as do our part to ensure that we're creating a stable world that will allow us to provide healthcare to kids right through till you know, their gray years.
0: So we have a situation in Canada, and I spoke with the president of the CMA about this several times. During the election campaign, we have 5 million Canadians, approximately, who have no family physician, and so for these Canadians... The fundamental health care delivery system can and often does break down at the very beginning because they can't access you know, a walk-in clinic maybe a distance away. And I've spoken uh, with, uh, with with a Canadian who's very prominent. I'm not going to mention his name because it wouldn't be fair. But his family physician just retired. His walk-in clinic is 30 minutes away, and the walk-in clinic is taking appointments. He has to wait two, mo- two weeks to get into a walk-in clinic. Are we all, Are we not already compromising health care delivery in Canada and 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 if we're doing what you say we need to do, uh, and uh, this this is a legitimate question, are we not further potentially compromising the delivery of healthcare to people who need it?
4: I actually think that this is part of um, a way of rationalizing all of it. We know right now that we're spending far too much.
0: Well, we really don't. We don't really don't have the best phone connection. To go ahead.
4: Yeah. No. I'm sorry. We're spending far too much money. Uh, What we need to do is spend more money on the public health services that prevent illness in the first place, as well as making sure that the interventions that we're doing um, make a difference to people. And I think that as we take a look at creating a healthcare system that serves both people and the planet, because we know that essentially we don't take care of the planet. You know, that's what we depend on to have the, you know, the stable resources, the stable weather, the stable food, the stable, um, you know, economic and political systems that allow us to have the resources to even have a stable healthcare system. Um, we, we're we going to have trouble. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities for us to take a look um, at where we can uh, basically be more efficient and then that will free up some money for us to spend more money on public health, which will help to keep people out of our acute care spaces in the meantime. And then as we move to more team-based care and primary care, and that's actually a, a priority of the Canadian Medical Association going forward this year as well, as and take advantage of some of the opportunities that technology is um, currently uh, offering us in terms of virtual care and team-based care I think we're actually going to end up in a place where people have better access to their their family docs and have better access to people of um, you know various different degrees of training that can answer their questions in a way that is you know meets their needs so I think it's A chance for us to take a a good look at what we're doing and come up with a plan that serves us both now and in the future.
0: Uh, Dr. Howard, hold on, please. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and talk more with Dr. Courtney Howard. Um, She is Canadian spokesperson for the International Lancet Countdown Report and a Yellowknife emergency physician wildfire researcher. Here's a term that scares me, and Dr. Howard just used it. She can hear what I'm saying. Virtual care. That scares me. Real care doesn't scare me. Virtual care scares me. And here's another question I'll ask Dr. Howard when when she comes back, and she can hear it so she can prepare for the answer. If we haven't spent the money to do the things that Dr. Howard and her group says we need to do, and she represents the CMA, Canadian Medical Association, if we haven't spent the money yet, what's the likelihood we're going to spend the money? And ultimately, I also want to ask her, because this is a very interesting part of the, uh, let me just find it here. Um, okay. Overall, the 2019 Lancet countdown reports on the extensive health damage from climate change and sets out the lifelong health consequences of rising temperatures for a child born today. We'll talk about that. We'll get to talk more with Dr. Courtney Howard. Why can't we get mobile phones? Why can't we get the mobile system to work properly? What do we keep saying? 50 years ago, we put two men on the moon, and the third one was circling around the moon. And our mobile phones have more computing capability. The least expensive mobile phone has more computing capability than Apollo 11 had. And we still can't get a signal that works. You <laughs> know? And for that, you pay how much? so we have five minutes so can we have four minutes we have to squeeze a lot in here dr howard when i hear virtual care i get scared what is that
5: virtual care is
4: any type of care that is provided um at not directly uh with the patient and you know i train through the family practice college and so i have a really strong belief in the importance of the doctor patient interaction and so You know, nobody's suggesting that we don't have, you know, people at the bedside taking care of patients. But sometimes it is more convenient for people, particularly if you already have a relationship with a provider and now you have a quick question for, you know, a phone call. That could be even considered virtual care or a, you know, quick telephone or um, sort of Skype conversation. Um, Particularly when there's big distances involved, it's much better for the patient. You know, in the north, we have people who have to come down from, you know, a NUVIC to come see a um, uh, person in Yellowknife. And sometimes they have kids that they have to leave behind. They, you know, they lose time at work. And so I think we need to take a look at it as part of our toolkit, certainly not to replace um, everything that we do now, but as one option.
0: Okay. Now, when it comes to money, you talk about putting money into the system or putting money into, you know, Doing what needs to be done. If the money's not been put in, let's be realists. If the money has not been put in yet, what makes you believe it's going to be?
4: Well, we we really can. Uh, we haven't done a great job of rationalizing some of it. So we still do a lot of.
0: Um, but you know, you know, this is instance. a ge- you know, this is a generational yeah. thing, right?
4: Um. Well, I think you know it's a it's a communication thing. When what we do, it, we do still do things like ordering a white blood cell count every single day when somebody's in hospital. It Really doesn't change care much, and there is change happening. So, Brady, where, do, where would you, like, if you had a, ca- they-
0: let me ask you this: if you had a cancer patient who's yeah. in difficulty, a uh, difficult situation, where do you draw the line? Do you say to that patient, uh, "Well, we're not going to do a white blood cell count every day because it's not going to be different than yesterday"? Or are we talking about different situations, different realities?
4: Well, it totally depends on the patient, but I mean, these poor cancer patients, my mom had cancer and so did my dad, they don't, you know, if, if the white blood cell count isn't going to help direct their care, and meanwhile, they're getting poked every single day, that's not a kindness, that's not good care. So what we need to make sure we do is do the kind of patient-centered care that is really going to offer benefit to the patient. Okay. Um, and it just happens that a lot of that is going to result in blood care.
0: All right. So the the whole idea here is to uh, create a more efficient and uh, and and uh, and pollution reduced uh, reality for healthcare. We have thirty seconds here. It deserves more. Uh, Forty five seconds. When you say that you're measuring the impact of the current reality and and what it may do to a child born today, speak to that, please.
4: Yeah, our kids right now. We we have a really big job. Uh, we have. In 2020, Canada will make its new commitments to the uh, Paris Climate Change Agreement. And we need to make commitments that are consistent with the Paris Agreement making its targets. Because right now, a child born today will experience a Canada that's 6 degrees Celsius warmer by the time they're in their 60s. And we don't think we can adapt to that in a way that's healthy or that maintains health care. We need to get ourselves on the lower emissions pathway, which will still see us about 1.5 degrees Celsius, but warmer by the time they're in about their 30s. But despite the fact that there will be more wildfires, there will be more heat waves, and we think we can cope with that and keep people safe and healthy. So
0: you think you, you believe that in the next fifty years we're going to see an increase of six degrees Celsius globally?
4: That's what Canada's changing climate report says. Yes, it's we're warming at double the global rate yeah. here in Canada, where I live. know and I are warming at triple the global rate. It's really serious, and we need to take action to protect today's kids.
0: Dr. Howard, we'll have to pick up the discussion another day. I know there are people who would like to challenge that number, but I appreciate you coming on the show and talking to me. Thank you.
4: Sure. I mean, that's Environment Canada's number, so that's that's what our smartest people have told us the numbers are.
0: Okay. Thank you for the time.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Dr. Courtney Howard. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites.